show. It hasn't quite been a year, but an academic year will suffice. So what we'll do is play some clips from our favorite episodes and tell you a little bit about what the Terry Project podcast actually is. So, Gordon, I think the first question is, what exactly is the Terry Project? Well, it's this UBC initiative meant to foster interdisciplinary dialogue between students of the arts and students of the sciences around the most important and pressing global issues of the day, things like climate change and conflict, drought, disease, and whatever really is on the minds of students. Um, as any student of really any university will quickly realize, you learn in these sorts of silos where if you're an art student, you don't really communicate very much with science students, and if you're a science student, you don't really communicate much with art students. Um, and the problem with that is the issues that we're tackling, things like climate change, um, the, the politics of it, and the humanity side of it, is inextricably linked with the science of it. You can't move forward on the politics if you don't know the science, because uh, the science informs your urgency. And you can't really do much with the science if you don't know anything with the politics. So what the Terry Project does is it creates these events that try to promote dialogue. And so one of those things is the Terry Global Speaker Series. Um, this year we had Bill McKibben, the environmentalist from 350.org. We had Kavita Ramdas, who's a former president of the Global Fund for Women. We also had um, Kanon last year, Dembisa Moya, David Suzuki. Uh, in addition, we do a couple other things, most notably the TEDx Terry Talks, which is boring from the TED model, allows uh, eight or nine UBC students to give 15, 20-minute uh, talks to a room full of their peers. So you mentioned Bill McKibben. Maybe we should go ahead and air the conversation we had with Bill McKibben earlier this year about climate science. When I spoke to Bill McKibben, it was in the midst of the giant Keystone XL pipeline battle. He had just organized over 10,000 people encircling the White House in protest of the pipeline. And shortly before that, he was arrested with over a 1,000 others in the largest coordinated act in civil disobedience in recent memory. The first question I asked him was about civil disobedience and when it's appropriate to use it. Well, it's one tool, I guess, in the toolkit of activists, and it's not the one you want to reach for all the time. But there are moments when, in the American tradition anyway, it's a way to dramatize the moral urgency of something. To say, excuse me, I need your attention. This thing is so important that I'm willing to go get arrested for it. And what was interesting about these Washington civil disobedience things was it wasn't the usual suspects. We said, we don't want college kids to be the cannon fodder here. Uh, it's maybe not the best time in the world, given our economy, for an 18-year-old to have an arrest record. Uh, instead, we want people who've spent their lives pouring carbon into the atmosphere. Now, we didn't ask people how old they were, because that would have been rude. But we asked, who was president when you were born? And the uh, biggest cohort of arrestees were born in the FDR and Truman administrations. So we really were getting um, um, people uh, uh, of all kinds, and it was beautiful to see. And I think very powerful, partly for that reason. We also told everybody, if you want to get arrested, you better be wearing a necktie or a dress. We want to make visually the point that we are not the radicals here. Radicals are people who are willing to alter the composition of the atmosphere. And that's the most radical thing anyone's ever done. So, you know, Exxon and Suncor and whoever, these guys are radicals who were sort of conservatives. We'd kind of like to see the world in something the same shape as the one we were born into. Yeah, I was wondering myself why conservatives aren't also conservationists. But uh, yeah. Justin Ritchie from the Alma Mater Society, our student union, heads up the uh, sustainability initiative. And he was particularly interested in asking you how how this movement and the larger um, these larger issues are portrayed in media and how you feel the role, what the role of news media is and how they're doing at um, uh, illuminating these issues. Well, look, you have to break through. Um, and we're, you know, it's very hard. Uh, the media doesn't necessarily cover this kind of protest and things. It doesn't really like to. It would much rather not annoy the powers that be and so on. But if you make enough noise, then eventually you kind of break through and they have no choice but to do some coverage. And I must say in the last couple of weeks, it's been pretty good. The New York Times broke a really powerful story explaining uh, exactly how it, how it was that the 
TransCanada had managed to subvert the environmental review of this pipeline project. In short, TransCanada had been allowed by the U.S. State Department to submit a list of three companies that they wanted to review the project. The State Department picked the top name on the list, even though if you go to their website, they describe themselves as a major client of TransCanada's. So the whole thing was just a... Uh, uh, incestuous, I guess, would be the best word, and depressing in that way. Yeah, it really stunk. And it's encouraging to see that um, your name is all over the New York Times op-ed page, and I think they wrote an editorial in, in your favor or against the Trans-Canada. Exactly right. The, Times, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, and a lot of other newspapers and things have come out on the right side of this. So I also wanted to talk to you about um, a little bit of sort of strategy about what where are your demands? What are the most effective demands? Do you um, work on, on local levels with particular uh, struggles, pipeline by pipeline, or do you make a broader claim about the decarbonation of our economy and these sorts of things? Um, Olav Slaymaker from the Department of Geography points to how there's a polarization, polarization between believers and, and naysayers are believers of decarbonization and people who um, rather take it step by step. So I wanted to get a sense for yeah. you, sort of how do you craft your message? We do uh, all things at all times. Most of my work the last three years has been in founding and helping build this movement called 350.org, which has become the most widespread climate campaign on the planet, um, in some ways the most widespread political movement on the planet, or at least that's what CNN said once we'd carried out 15,000 rallies in every country on earth except North Korea. So depending on what country you're talking about, the work is very, very different and the strategies are very, very different. And, uh, you know, one place you're working on bike paths and the next place you're working on carbon emission laws and the next place you're working working on coal ports and so on and so forth, uh, to some degree it's opportunistic and to some degree you have to figure out how to try to make it all come together because unless we can get a, a, you know, some kind of global commitment to raise the price of carbon, we're probably not going to get all of this done in time. Uh, since we're not getting that at the moment, since the UN process is broken, we have to work double hard to try and keep carbon in the ground where we can in places like the tar sands. My name is Gordon Kadek and you're listening to the um, Terry Project podcast on CRTR 101.9 FM. And I'm here with Bill McKibben, who says the uh, UN process, the climate process is broken. And um, Aaron Crockett, the president of the Environmental Science Student Association here at UBC, wants to know from Bill McKibben, um, how can students, university students in particular, uh, make their voices most heard? It's very important for students to do all kinds of work around their campus and community, but my sense is UBC has done an awful lot of that work, uh, that it's you know a, a showpiece in many ways. So I would also say don't spend all your time sort of gilding the lily there and get out and get involved politically, nationally. Uh, uh, Canada turns out to be a huge... Um, a uh, uh, huge force in this question of whether or not we're going to deal with the climate. And at the moment, the Canadian government is, I'm afraid, leaving its biggest legacy for the century in terms of carbon emissions into the atmosphere. That's not the sort of things we're used to having Canada famous for. Canada is supposed to be helping other countries solve problems, not create them for people all over the world. So we really need you guys digging in politically. And we know you have leaders in that part of the world who are uh, uh, up to the task doing the organizing. People like my friend Elizabeth from Valkyrie, it's young people all over the world that are leading this fight. So don't wait to, uh, you know, graduate to get out on the national stage. Get out there now. Another question that um, Catherine Harrison had from UBC Political Science was that um, not only this country, but really this province in particular is a significant producer of fossil fuels. Uh, and um, there is a proposed pipeline, gateway pipeline, from the tar sands to yeah. uh, the coast of these. message to um, British Columbians about this pipeline and, and how can we act to stop it? Well, do whatever you can to stop it. And I think all behind are the indigenous communities who seem to be doing a uh, uh, terrific job. And uh, I think that they're really, really, uh, it's been a long time to 
try and defeat all those indigenous communities and all the people in British Columbia. But we need you guys fighting just as hard as people in Nebraska are fighting and as the rest of us who've been going to jail and whatever are fighting. Sprouts. It's your 75 cent coffee fix in the sub. It's your source for reasonably priced, creatively named stew and vegan brownies. It's your purveyor of bicycle-delivered local produce. It's also a place where volunteers can realize their vision of responsible business and where like-minded students can explore UBC's food systems. Hark! Sprouts is currently accepting applications for next year's executive board and is encouraging ambitious, creative, and disciplined students from all faculties and year levels to apply. Come by Sprouts in the sub-basement to learn more about our projects and how to get involved. I tried to kick the ball, but my tinny flew right out. I'm red as a beat, cause I'm... So that was just a conversation between Gordon and Bill McKibben that we actually recorded early in the year. I think that was from November. Yeah, that was, it was really timely. Bill McKibben visited UBC on November 16th, uh, which was really just days after the big uh, Keystone XL pipeline victory. Um, Bill McKibben, with 10,000 other activists, had forced the Obama administration's hand in suspending the pipeline development um, for independent review. Uh, but uh, just days after that happened, our own government, the, the Harper government, said that this would mean that we need to more aggressively push tar sands oil through to Asia, through Asian markets through BC, uh, which meant the Northern Gateway Pipeline and other proposed uh, projects that would radically expand BC's carbon exports. So Bill McKibben not only um, reflected on his victory, um, but said that the new fight would be really in our own backyard and that it was important for us to take action. Um, so it was it was great to have him there right at that that time because we uh, we were right at the center of it, and we still are. Right, and I think at the time the conversation was folded into a broader conversation that we were having, which was about the way we organized our economy. Um, Bill McKibben actually came with us to address the crowds of people in front of the Vancouver Art Gallery who were taking part in Occupy Vancouver. Um, yeah, that was really interesting. In fact, he. He had, he was completely haggard from his um, travel schedule, and we really had a busy, busy few days with him. But it was him that really wanted to go down to Occupy Vancouver. It was right off the plane. We said, do you want to check your bags? Like, nope, I've been dying to, uh, to get down to uh, see Occupy Vancouver. We went right from the airport downtown, and he, uh, he was tired, but um, it, he really livened his spirits, and, and he enjoyed it a lot. So maybe let's go even a few weeks further back in time and give you some tape that Gordon and I collected from the first day of the Occupy Vancouver protests. We were walking along with hordes of protesters along Granville Street, Burrard, um, walking and chanting. Um, so we'll go to that clip. We are the social awakening that is happening right now. Open your hearts, minds, souls to the beauty that we already are. The love we have for nature and realizing we are not separate from nature. So we are loved and we are loving. We are also already rich with spirit and each other. We don't need and don't want their multinational corporate bullshit anymore. Last but not least, we are free in our hearts, minds and bodies. We think and choose for ourselves. We cooperate and support each other. We will no longer compete against each other for their 1% bullshit rewards. We have a sense of humor. We find common ground. We will no longer be divided and conquered. We are the 99%. We are the majority. Rise up. Rise up, people. Time is now. Thank you. I'm here in solidarity with my sister, who's been locked down at her job for all summer. The Rocky Mountaineer, a luxury train company that's based in, in BC, has locked on all their employees and hired scab labor. And so what is your sister and her union fighting for in particular? They want their requests. We're asking for overtime after 11 hours of work, because right now they, they're scheduled in a way they never get overtime. Huh. And that was their big request, and the company refused to do it. Payoffs to larger amounts of cash, you can ask Stephen Harper. Burning up the paper trail, the massive area. A little bit more, who can't as a white America? So I say, that. By now you shall understand why we struck back. The revolution. 
shit is up to you, it's no joke. Yeah. Straight up, so you should know what you provoke. Yeah, will we fuck No matter where you live, right down to the city streets. Can you read your signs? So what do you think? Yeah. I don't know who cares. I got 99 problems and the rich have none. And how does it feel to be here today with everyone else? How does it feel to be yeah. here? Well, it feels great. All these the signs down here are priceless and they're, they're worth reading. So maybe we should read your sign that says... Un the world! That's right. <laughs> so, who the world? Um, that I don't really know the answer to. All I know is that the world's and no one's paying the price for it. You have a very interesting uh, American flag here today. It's not quite the standard flag. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Um, it's the American design. However, the stars of the states have been replaced with corporate logos. Just really into the, this, this notion of a, a sort of organic, uh, free-form movement that uh, kind of figures out what it's doing as it goes along. It's super inclusive and brings together many, many voices. Isn't this like an anti-revolutionary song? Yeah. But it's like an anti-like right-wing fascist revolution song. Let's okay. tell them that we are going to occupy this place and that's it. Sam, what is the human mic? The human mic is a process where you get a speaker to yell out his speech, and then everyone around him in a circle yells it in unison together louder, and then that way it is amplified, gets to a wider range of people. I think any small movements can band together and become a large movement. We're seeing it globally right now. Yeah. You know, the, the awakening in all these Arab countries is just the tip of the iceberg. It's really collective movements that are shaping the world. It's a revolution. Like, it's, it's going to happen. They're cold. No, not that cold. <laughs> so how has the, the protest been today? What's sort of the character of it? It's been relatively peaceful. Have there been some incidents? Very peaceful. No incidents of note. Uh, it's really a diverse crowd. You can tell when you're standing down here, a lot of kids and a lot of families. That helps to make a pretty positive atmosphere overall. We typically know that from past events when you get that mix. It's usually a pretty good crowd. So that's been good. The art gallery sites, figure probably um, the crowds grew to about 4,000 during the peak of it. It's fluctuating a little bit as some of the marches go off. The one march this afternoon was in the neighborhood of 2,000 people. That was the largest march we saw. And then we've had situations with multiple marches at the same time, so that's kept us pretty busy on the streets. It's and also tied up traffic. What did you expect? Like, how, does, how did the police prepare for something This like is this? what we expected. We had really good information from self-identified organizers before the day came. And we knew there'd be multiple marches. We knew there'd be a big group here. That's all materialized. And we have uh, the ability to flex our plans within their plans. So we're able to keep up with those marches and facilitate the safety aspect of that as well. And so I guess my final question is, so you've probably seen a lot of, of protests around Vancouver, and, and we've got a particularly bad name lately because of the Stanley Cup riots. And so I wanted to get a sense from you how this what this demonstrates about Vancouver and how this is different from the character of past incidents. We'll, we'll even look at it a bit broader than that. We, we police in the neighborhood of 200 or more protests a year and 90% of them or higher come off fine. They're peaceful, they're lawful. We facilitate the access and the movement through the city and people get a chance to see their cause. Uh, we had an incident obviously back in June that really made a lot of the businesses down here nervous. Made people nervous about what to expect from a large gathering in the downtown core again. And it's been really good here today. That's very positive. We want to see that. We also want to see people have the opportunity to express their views. And it's difficult to do that when you have people causing problems. Fortunately, that element has not been here today. And do you get the sense that, that there are more protests now than there was say, 10 years ago? Is this rep growing and intensifying? It's difficult to know. We've always had, you know, a couple hundred events every year. Uh, some are planned, some are unplanned. They crop up. What has changed, though, very definitely is the involvement of social media now in how these things organize themselves. We know that now we have to be even more flexible with the plans. We can have a, a plan, but it has to have room to grow because social media, people can organize on social media so quickly and come, come to an area so quickly. So we have, you know, we keep an open mind to what the possibilities are around these large events. Make sure we have the resources at the ready. 
Liveband.com is Vancouver's community-driven concert calendar. New shows are added daily by the city's most active promoters, musicians, and by the driving force of the music scene, the fans. Liveband.com's listings are different because they are integrated with profiles updated by bands and business owners as they promote upcoming events. Check out the archives to see how closely we've worked within the community to put on the shows you love. Visit LiveMusicVancouver.com for the latest independent and major label event listings. LiveVan.com, Vancouver's community-driven concert calendar. Welcome back to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 11.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. This week's episode is a very special highlights episode in which we look back at the year, our first year. Uh, you can find more about our program at terry.ubc.ca. You can download our smartphone app, which is available on the website, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or listen to us every alternating Wednesday on CITR 101.9 FM. Uh, this next clip we're going to air is from our episode about journalism. It's one of our favorite episodes. Uh, in this segment, I spoke to Brian Platt, who's the features editor of the UBC. That's the campus paper here. As well as Peter Klein, who's the head of the journalism school and an Emmy award-winning journalist himself. He was the producer of 60 Minutes and he was an investigative journalist for Frontline. Um, there's a tremendous uh, piece in the Times, I think it won a Pulitzer in 2007, about how Pentagon-paid uh, generals were coming on the Daily News, yep. on MSNBC, ABC, um, spouting uh, propaganda for the war and, uh, and doing it with a, an air of impartiality and object- objectivity. And so I think we, what we need to talk about when we talk about the journalism industry is also this parallel industry, the public relations industry. There are exponentially more PR professionals than the are journalists, um, and they seem to be growing at a faster rate. So how has this shaped, how has this affected um, the state of journalism? Well, I mean, if it's okay with you, I'd love to just sort of put the question to, to, to Brian to see if this is something that you guys deal with at, at the UBC. Is this, uh, I mean, do you guys, I, I assume you, you probably get a lot of press releases. Um, how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, I think the way we look at it is the fact that you have to know what's going on, and the, and the, and it, the, Especially, we're, I mean, we're not we're not typical of most newspapers writing that. Almost everything we do is run by volunteers. At least a lot of our writing, our editors are paid. Our writers aren't, or most of them aren't. And uh, a difficulty with that is is having enough people out in the field to know what's going on. So for us, a lot a lot of it comes from the press release, and I think, or to at least tip us off that this is happening. And um, I can say that the way that we we're always wary about just rehashing something that's been given to us by the person who has tried to promote what's going on. You have to be willing to look into it and not just take a press release or an interview with that person or anything along those lines at its word. You have to be aware of, of that danger and go at it. And you also you know, have to, at the same time that you're going to report on it, have... Um, a little bit of analysis on your opinion page of somebody who is going to take a stance one way or another so it's not so that you know you can create that sort of argument in your pages about whether something is uh, everything that it's being made out to be or not right no and, and I mean you know as a regular reader of, of the paper I, I my sense is that, that you guys do that that you don't just you know reprint press releases and what one of the surprising experiences for me after I left 60 minutes full time you know 60 minutes I, I didn't I, I did my story and it was done and I moved on and, and it aired and and the PR people took care of doing PR for it. Uh, I moved to, to Canada, I moved to Vancouver, set up a production company and started doing my own productions and, and all of a sudden I'm a businessman and I'm, you know, I want to drum up as much business for my production company as possible. And the first production we did won a whole bunch of awards and, um, and so I thought, okay, well this is good, I'll put out a press release. I don't know. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I wrote, wrote, wrote something up. It wasn't too kind of self-congratulatory, but it was, you know, it was accurate. It was completely accurate. And I sent it off to, to I won't mention the newspaper, but a major paper um, and, uh, you know, a major mainstream newspaper. And I could not believe that, like, two days later, they printed word for word what I wrote with someone else's byline on it. And I was like... This is crazy. They didn't call me. They didn't fact check this. I could have said I won a Nobel Peace Prize, and would they have printed it? I don't know. Um, and they took my words. They like, I thought they would just use this information to say, oh, cool, maybe we'll look into this, or maybe we'll lump it together with a piece on something else. They and and this is not the, that's not the first that's not the only time it's happened to me. It's happened to me two or three other times where I've sent press releases out and people have caught have have run them 
nearly verbatim. And that's what made, you know, that to me, uh, <laughs> it, it made me realize, like, wow, there really is a lot of laziness and a lot of sort of desperation for copy out there if, if they would do that. And, you know, sort of turning back to, to your question, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with the Pentagon's project there to, to kind of spin, uh, this is under, under the Bush administration, um, to, you know, send people out there who, who are supposedly uh, independent uh, commentators for, for mostly for the cable channels who were really on the, on the payroll of the Pentagon. You know, again, that's the 24-hour 24 hour cable needs um, pretty much 24 hours of stuff, right? And they got to fill the airtime. Uh, and so there, there's a little bit of desperation there for uh, anyone to come on there to talk about things. Um, and unfortunately, there wasn't, wasn't too much scrutiny about who those people were. There does tend to be this um, something that uh, I think it's Jay Rosen from NYU, the journalism professor, calls the cult of the savvy politician. Um, and journalists, what they do is they tend to um, fixate and, and focus on on how good a politician is rather than any semblance of his, his or her objectivity. So you have all sorts of cases where you take, for instance, the coverage of debates, right? You'll have debates with CNN political analysts after a debate talking about how um, how good they did, how well they sold their message, but there's no semblance of a discussion on the actual ob objective merits of their arguments or these sorts of things. So do you, do you guys both get the sense that like journalists seem to be tremendously invested in the political culture more so than um, some objective measures of, of, of what, what truth is? Is, is that a, tr a new trend or has it always been that way? Well, uh, I mean, I, I know like a, a, the famous example that a lot of people will talk about is is the press correspondence dinner in the U.S. where it's all the journalists and all the politicians are supposed to be covering in one room, all joking around and making fun of each other and laughing. And I think there's even an incident, uh, an incident a little while ago of um, uh, like a, a water gun fight that broke out at right. some Joe Biden and Wolf Blitzer, yeah, right? Something <laughs> that they were both at. And you know, I think it's it's a the, the journalists who are sort of assigned to cover. Um, you know, parliament and politicians, and and you know whatever country they're in. Uh, I think I I think it is really there is without ever having you know any direct experience of this, obviously, except in a minor way covering student a very minor way covering student politics at UBC. It's really easy to get sucked into that uh, environment and to get seduced by going to the uh, fun swanky parties and that sort of thing and becoming too friendly with the people who you're supposed to be covering you can get a benefit out of that which is when when something juicy comes up they'll give you that information and you can cover it but of course you're getting it you have to be aware of the source you're getting it from and their agenda and and i i, I think there's a real danger whenever you get too too friendly with the people that you're supposed to be covering and it happens it happens at ubc uh, with the people that our newspaper is supposed to be covering just as much as it happens, you know, at the White House. <laughs> no, I, I think I think you're right. It, it's very easy to get sucked into that. And it's it, it's a game, really. I mean, I, I had a situation where I was pressuring the Pentagon. Um, this is when Colin Powell was Secretary of, of, of Defense, pressuring the Pentagon for some information. And they literally called, called up CBS and said, we're going to... We're going to block you guys from access to the Pentagon if Peter Klein doesn't give up and you know chill out and stop asking for this information. I mean, it's to that level where where you know 60 Minutes is kind of outside of the the, the regular news world. So it, you know we don't. It doesn't really affect us one way or another if if the, the if the, the evening news folks can't can't have access. But I mean, obviously we're good good you know journalistic citizens, and we don't want to screw our colleagues. And I, we figured out a way, you know, a way around it. But, um, but I mean, it was interesting that sort of kind of one hand, one hand washes the other kind of uh, attitude that was going on. Like, you you need to keep getting access to us to do your work. And if you do, if you're too uh, aggressive and you pressure us too much, you're not going to get that access. Um, I mean, that said, in the in the debates, I mean, I've watched a lot of the American uh, political debates, the Republican primaries, and. I mean, one of my favorite things um, is uh, what Anderson Cooper does, and I'm sure other journalists do too. Is, uh, CNN calls it keeping them honest, where they fact check the, the the debates and they they go through every single point that that each candidate makes and and checks it. And if you watch this, I mean, you really feel like you've watched a, 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 
a work of fiction with these debates because every single person, not only not every single person, but very very often the politicians not only are just not only are spinning things. I mean, spin is one thing where you kind of take the reality and kind of take a, a particular approach on it. But if you say, you know, job job growth went up forty eight percent in 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 my state in the last three months. And it, it didn't. There's no there's no conceivable numbers in which you can get that. You just made it up. Um, that's what these guys do. And and you know CNN has actually done a really good job at at, at vetting this. Um, now of course they're not doing that the moment after the debate. There's only so much that, that can be done. You know in in terms of the time frame. And and I think the journalists respond probably the way a lot of people respond. Where you know how did so and so come across? You know if if. If Rick Perry's bumbling um, and kind of screwing up his his syntax and everything, and comes across as not terribly bright, that's the that's sort of a first impression, and that's what they're going to say. Um, and and you know, for better or worse, that has lasting impact. Um, and in that case, I think it, it significantly affected uh, Rick Perry's uh, uh, standing in, in the polls. You're definitely right to highlight the the keeping in on segment segment. I think it's tremendous. But it always struck me, and I think this was John Stewart that said this. But isn't this what you're supposed be doing all the time. You just heard a clip from our journalism episode featuring Brian Platt and Peter Klein. For this next clip, we'll highlight a talk from our TEDx Terry Talks. The TEDx Terry Talks are an annual student conference that the Terry Project puts on. This is our fourth ever Terry Talks and our first sellout. Um, this clip is from Richard Kemick. He gives a talk entitled Appraising Canada's Future creating value from our past. It sounds rather generic, but this was certainly not a generic talk. It was a satirical piece about privatizing Canadian history and selling it off to the highest bidder. Right now, Canadian historians own one thing, and that's the information we teach slash sell. Now, albeit some people might say we don't necessarily own this information, but those pe people are probably saying that in a Russian accent with a Che Guevara t-shirt on, to which I would say, quiet down, comrade, and keep out of the way of progress. <laughs> if we, as Canadian historians, were to auction off the individual parts of our past to the highest bidder, the financial possibilities are limitless. Let me give you a couple examples. Right now, the common perception of Canadian history looks something like this. Stuff that happened in the last 30 years. British and French stuff, <laughs> Confederation stuff, Indian stuff, war stuff, Great Depression stuff, Margaret Atwood stuff. Marley <laughs> stuff Trudeau has done. And... Quebec dicking around. <laughs> Look at how they've separated themselves from the graph up there. <laughs> but as you can all obviously see, this, this graph is incredibly inefficient at showing the, the complexity and the, the intricacy of our history. We're not even coming close to maximizing profits. What we need to do is to divide the history into what we in the department call years. <laughs> that way, the graph will look something more like this. Ta-da! <laughs> With this model, we can now offer the opportunities for individual capitalists to come into our newly created market and buy a year, a century, a decade. It doesn't matter. We'll take any money. Let me slow things down and give you guys an example of how this would work. So let's say the ghost of Ted Rogers wants to buy the years 1935 to 1945. And let's say in this example, in the, the heat of the auction house, this will cost him 100 grand. So that's 10 years at $100,000 or $10,000 a year. Rogers comes up with the money and congratulations, you now own those 10 years. But wait, Conrad Black gets his prison bookie to, to bid on the year 1944. Conrad Black is going to have to pay $10,000 plus $1 
And then congratulations, Mr. Black. Thanks to the strong price of cigarettes in prison right now, you now own 1944, while Rogers retains control of the years 1935 to 1943 and 1945. Now, you may ask yourself, why would these two saints of Canadian economic enterprise want to buy a year of Canadian history? What's, what's the incentive to purchase? What would happen is that when you or your family or your faceless corporation purchase a year of Canadian history, you're then given the unmitigated power of determining what happened in that same year. <laughs> Furthermore, Canadian historians vow to keep up our end of the bargain and teach your version as the official version. <laughs> You're not only supporting history, you're creating it! <laughs> Let's follow this example through. So, you'll remember that Ted Rogers bought the years 1935 to 1945. And he did this so he could say that Rogers Communications solved the Great Depression and won the Second World War through their revolutionary invention, the Rowphone. <laughs> You'll also recall that Conrad Black bought the year 1944. And he did this so that he could say on August 25th of that year in Montreal, from the skull of Attila the Hun sprouted Conrad Black as Athena born from Zeus. <laughs> Ted Rogers can now either outbid Black and once again retain control of 1944, or he can let the row phone slip into oblivion only to make its dramatic comeback after the year Attila the Hun unexpectedly showed up. <laughs> the history doesn't have to make sense as long as it makes dollars and cents. <laughs> and is it ever going to make a lot of that? Right now, this is roughly how much money Canadian history is making. <laughs> yeah. This is the recession right here, people. Now, look at what happens post Dr. Chemic Initiative. Oh! What bad? The graph goes up! Business students, help me out here! This is great, right? Look at how it, oh, look at how it surges upward, throbbing and, and pulsating with a red of possibility. Red right through its shaft to its bulbous tip. Who wouldn't want a piece of this action? This guy's losing it over here. But don't blow your load just yet, sir. It gets better. Let's now assign some values to this graph. One million dollars! It says we could be making one million dollars over the course of a, uh, I don't know, a week? I, I have no idea how this graph works. But still, one million dollars. That's more than half a million and almost as much as two. Because of UBC's mantra that you only get money if you make money, Louis Riel can go from being hung to well hung. <laughs> Yeah, be offended. <laughs> Japanese internment can go to Japanese interns. <laughs> and finally, residential schools can turn into residential living. Ta-da! Now, some might say that, yeah, it is gross, I agree. Now, some might say that these stories are integral to our national narrative our, our sense of self, the very foundation upon which our country is being built. To which I would say, shut off Stalin and keep out of the way of progress. Do you want to make the right impression during your big interview? Arts Co-op would like to help. The ultimate package from the Arts Co-op Student Association includes a professional portfolio, business cards, and a USB pen. For more information, email acsapromo at gmail.com.
Okay, so from there, let's segue to somewhere completely different. Gordon, when we get together to try to figure out what the next Terry Project podcast is going to be about, it's usually pretty serious. We have our computers open, we're doing research, we're writing things down. But most recently, the process was very different. Yeah, the three of us, um, including Molly, who couldn't be here today, uh, we met around 1 o'clock and all we could think about was how starving we were. We hadn't had lunch, we hadn't had breakfast, and we weren't getting much work done. We were just talking about food. And therefore, we produced a full-length episode entirely about food um, that included this clip, which is our most charming interview with Michel Jacob, who is the head chef and owner of Le Crocodile be Restaurant in Vancouver. Our guest, be our guest. started uh, my, my apprenticeship as a chef I was 14 year old and the reason um, the reason um, I wanted to become a chef is because my dad always wanted to be become a chef and uh, he always cooked at, at home as well and I uh, you know and I when I was younger when I was 10 12 I always was with him in the kitchen and, and look look uh, and cook, cook and was cooking with him and the problem with him and that he, he, he couldn't become a chef because during World War Two, when he was 16, 18, there was the war, and, uh, and then after the war, there was no hotel or a restaurant because you know there was no economy, and um, and then he always used to say, "The reason you became a chef because I couldn't become a chef because it's very rare that you really step after your dad's footstep, you know, like I'm, if you had been a chef, I might have been something else." So, but the, the reason I became a chef is because my dad loved to cook, and when I was younger, I always cooked with him in the kitchen. And then when I was 14, I, was, I started an apprenticeship in a, in a restaurant. When I was 17, I was already a chef, and uh, not a chef, chef, but a cook. So, so I started very early. No kidding. Well, that's a, that's a great story, and I have had the personal privilege to sample some of your food. So obviously, your early training has a, you know, has. Yes. <laughs> I think I know, but I think it's very important because here in Canada, as you know, we have some. Sometimes you have some of those cooking schools here in town who call me up and say we have some good um, students with us. Could you come and observe with you for a day or two to to come make a stash? I said, no problem. And um, I come in the kitchen and I look at the guys, and the guys, fifty year old. I said, who are you? He says, oh. I'm the student. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, it's very, so it's much easier when you're younger to start the job because if you have any bad habits, we can, uh, we can make sure you don't have them. We can take care of it. When you're 50 year old and if you messy, slobby, uh, not cleaned or whatever, it's hard to change because you have those bad habits for the past 30, 40 years. So the key to so, cooking is get them young. Oh, yes. I think it's better when you start younger. Yeah? <laughs> and you know, so it's a tough job between your knees. It's not easy. You know, you, you you work on your feet all day, it's a go, 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 go. It's not like an office job where you sit behind a desk. So when you start late in life, it's, uh, it's going to be tougher as well. How would you, since you're not from Vancouver, especially you're going to have an interesting view on this, but how would you define Vancouver cuisine, food in Vancouver? What typifies it? 
Yeah, compared to uh, 25 years ago, even 20 years ago, as you know, Montreal and Toronto were way ahead of us, food-wise. But now I would say that Vancouver is the leading city in Canada as far as food. And um, and I believe, personally, and I mean, I mean, we have our own place now here. The Crocodile is open for the past 29 years. And uh, one of the reasons we see all those changes is because of our Asian influence in uh, Vancouver, specifically, as you know, the immigration uh, here in Canada, or especially in Vancouver, have lots of Chinese customers, and lots of Chinese people live in Canada, especially Vancouver, and uh, those people know about food. And the level of the food is personally, I think, in Vancouver is because of the Chinese influence, meaning the Chinese people know how to eat. It's very similar to French food, meaning by that they eat everything. Like we in France, we eat everything from from let's say from pork. We eat the pork ears, we eat the pork feet. We we do some blood uh, sausages with the pork um, blood and all that. And it's same in Chinese cuisine. Chinese cuisine, they eat the, the, the eyes of the salmon, the tongue of the rabbit, and blah blah blah. So. I would say one of the reasons that Vancouver is so um, high now in uh, cuisine is because of the very big uh, population of Chinese people in Vancouver. You say on uh, on your website that Le Crocodile mixes traditional French cooking with innovative West Coast style. So yes. from that, I wanted to ask you where Le Crocodile fits into Vancouver cuisine, sort of especially okay. in this sort of globalized we, we do, sense yeah. where you see it. We do classic French food, French cuisine, like like uh, you know, like classic sauces, like a Bernese, like a Hollandaise, like a Bordelaise, like a Pinot Noir sauce. But up to, to up to date, meaning um, we have ingredients that that uh, everybody cooks as well in Vancouver. Like we have chicken, we have pork, we have veal, we have lamb, we have tag. But we make it a lighter that it used to be 20, 25 years ago. So if you would have still the same menu we had 25 years ago, we'd be closed by now. What we do here at the Crocodile is French food, 100%, but with the West Coast touch, meaning we cook with West Coast ingredients. We don't import food from Europe. We, we, we really cook with food who are who is available in BC or in Canada. So it's um, it's a cuisine that when you come when you come into the Crocodile, um, we have about 25 different main courses and about five different specials every night. And there is always something you bound to, to like to, to eat. There is too many restaurants in Vancouver. The menu are too small, and after, you know only six, seven the main courses. And there is already two or three that you don't like. And then after a while, you don't want to go back because you don't know what to eat anymore. <laughs> I think it's very important. Um, when you open after 30 years, if we open up for 29 years, that you give your customer choice of different uh, ingredients, different foods. But you see, like we here at Le Crocodile, one of the reasons I, I believe that we still open after 29 years is we are very consistent. If your mom and dad used to come and have a, a chicken dish or, or a beef tenderloin or whatever, it's, what, you know, and you and you come back a year later or a month later and you say, well, I remember I had that dish and uh, that was really nice. I want it again. And it will be very, very close or very, very close to what you had a month ago or a year or two years ago. So one of the reasons the crocodile is still open after 28 years is we are consistent. And that's number one. You see, if you if you invite me at your house one day and you say, Michel, I would like to cook for you. And let's say you make me a nice leg of lamb. And I taste the lamb and say, oh, wow, that was very good. A year later, we say, Michel, I invite you again. What would you like to eat? I said, you remember, a year ago you made me like that leg of lamb. That was very good. If I come back to you a year later and you make me the same dish that you did a year ago, that I can remember because it's still in my memory, and it's as good as you did a year ago, I said, this lady knows how to cook. So it's very easy to change your menu every day. But you have to, you people like consistency. People, you know, 99% of the people who go out in a restaurant in Vancouver, in those 10, 12 restaurants who are known, where people move around, they all, um, how can I say, um, they, they know in advance what they're going to eat. And it's the same in Europe. There is restaurants who are open, especially the two or three star Michelin. People come from New York, they come from 
London, he come from Tokyo to, to, to eat that recipe. And that recipe is on the menu for the past 30, 40 years. Welcome back to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm Sam Fan, and I'm here with Gordon Kadic. In this next clip, we spoke with George Strombolopoulos, the host of The Hour with George Strombolopoulos on CBC television. George talked to us about a wide variety of subjects, but in particular, we were excited to hear him talk about the start of his career, which was also in a college radio station, much like the one we record this at every week um, at CITR. That clip is coming right up. So it must have been a really surprising rise for you to come to sort of CBC. This sort of it's craziness. It's completely surreal. It's not even part yeah. of it. Yeah, no. I'm not the kind of guy that has a plan to begin with anyway. And yeah. I, uh, I don't know how this happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm often reminded from my friends from the old days, just laugh at me. Like, what <laughs> the hell? Because if there was somebody who was least likely yeah. to have a talk show on CBC, it's me. Exactly. And I know people say that, but it's like legitimately, if you ask anybody who knew me, it's like, this is not what's supposed to happen. <laughs> Sam and I preparing for the interview, just like, how did this happen? Like, yeah. how do you, like, CBC is this sort of this old, stodgy institution, or at least has this sort of reputation of being that. And, you know, you have Peter Mansbridge on, mm-hmm. on CBC. Like, how, do you see yourself as sort of a counterpoint to him? No, like, not at where all. Where do you situate yourself in that broader if I If I can bask in just some of the glow that comes off Peter Mansbridge, <laughs> I'm okay. You know, the funny thing about Peter is, Peter's the reason why uh, the show can continues to exist at CBC. Um, I didn't know him. I met him once when uh, during the, the war, you know, when the uh, attacks on Afghanistan started and there was this concert called Music Without Borders at the Air Canada Centre in Toronto. A bunch of bands played. Peter introduced a band. I introduced a band. I was working at Much Music at the time and I'd met him there. Being He was super Canadian too. He had like one of those light tan leather jackets, you know, the kind that have the fringes yeah. on it, like super like legitimate, authentic Canadian. And we had met uh, a girl I was dating at the uh, roughly around that time uh, was working at CBC, so he he knew of me through her. But that was it; we didn't know each other. Mm. And every now and then, uh, after a much news hit, I would get my voicemail in the office, and it would be a voicemail from Mansbridge. It would just be like, "Hey, uh, Strombo, it's uh, Peter here," and <laughs> he'd be like, uh, "Saw what you were saying about Britney, Britney Spears. That's hilarious." Like Peter's really cool. So yeah. when when CBC was first approaching me about going to work there, I actually didn't even call them back. I didn't see myself working at CBC. I had a lot of the same preconceived notions yeah. that many people have about the CBC. Thank God my preconceived notions were wrong yeah. because I'm really enjoying it. But I remember cold calling Peter at his desk. <laughs> Again, he didn't really know me. Uh, you know, I met him a couple times by this point. Cold called him at his desk, and I said, "Dude, here's the thing. They're um." Yeah. They're talking to me about coming here. What do you think? And he took the time after the national one night to just lay down what I could expect. Mm-hmm. And a big reason why I went there is because Peter. And after the deal was up, the first 18 months, if Peter hadn't publicly supported the show and when he would go and speaking to us talk about the show, yeah. we never would have come back, right? It was This is Peter. Peter really is a big player here. Right. So, so that's tremendous. Now, you become this sort of renowned media personality that's known for getting tremendous interviews or maybe the foremost interviewer on okay and tv next to peter mansbridge so i feel sort of underqualified to interview oh, so the God. first question i want you're to a ask, human man that means you're, you're overqualified <laughs> that's the trick to a good interview that's, be a person that's awesome don't, don't be a broadcaster be a person so what would you what would your approach be? what would the first question be would it be just to do sort of small talk kind of thing like oh yeah the, yeah totally yeah. and a lot of times in the interview uh, process i don't even care what the first answer is i don't care what the mm. second or third answer is i don't treat every interview like every question is life and death it's really not because no conversation with a person is life or death yeah. what you want to do is be good company and connect with somebody so that the audience who's watching can connect with you and connect with them you create a comfort zone in that moment that person might say the thing yeah. that one thing that breaks your heart or makes your day that's it a lot of interviewers and again I, I'm, I'm not passing judgment it's just an observation but I've seen a lot of interviewers think an interview is a place for them to make a name for themselves mm. and it's not the person you're interviewing is in that spot for a reason Right. so Respect what the accomplishment is and have a real conversation with them. If you do that enough, let other people make the name for you. Yeah. You don't have to make a name for yourself. Others will make the name for you. So uh, could you maybe speak to some of your, like, your, your interrogative, your rhetorical style, you're sort of this cool, hip guy. It's, you, know, you have these big names. And you I'm, call too them dude hip, and I'm too old to be hip, man. I'm too old to be hip. Is that a sort of conscious effort to, no. to get to the heart of people, or is that just you sort of being George Strombolopoulos? The To get to the heart of a person... 
you have to let them know early that you're a real person, mm-hmm. right? That's it. And that you're not afraid to be a real person. If you don't set the tone, the comfort tone, the intimacy tone, then they're never going to be comfortable and nor will they allow you to be intimate in those moments, yeah. right? So I, uh, the, the, the way I speak, like the language or the vernacular, the dude and the man and the whatever, that's, sure. God, if I put that on, that would be so lame, right? <laughs> it's really, I'm just me. And in yeah. fact, I know that that holds me back in a way. I know that there are people in the audience who, who think I'm too informal. But I don't care. Like, yeah. I don't, well, whatever, man. I'm my mother's son. I'm your friend, so I don't really care, right? And and but how in the world do you, you said comfortable? How do you world are you comfortable, or the, are your the people you interview comfortable on CBC and national television? Millions of viewers. Yeah, you seem to actually get them to that point, but it seems like it's a challenge. Cause man, you have to be. You know, if you have any fears of intimacy. Um, you won't be able to pull this job off. You have to be able to shed everything. You have to be able to get rid of the audience around you. I ignore the audience in the room. I ignore it. When, when I'm talking to the camera, I'm talking to people at home, yeah. right? And, and the audience in the studio with me. But when I'm interviewing somebody, I just remove everything else mm. from the equation. Mm. And I, I'm straight in the eyes of the person, yeah. right? And I pay attention to them and, and I need them to pay attention to me. And sometimes, it's amazing, sometimes cats are built to be interviewed. And sometimes like, you have to look in their eyes and hold their hands with your <laughs> eyes and say, come with me. This will be okay. But look, it doesn't always work. Yeah. You know, lots of times where I do an interview and it bombs. And that's okay too, right? Sure. You know, it really is about being comfortable in the moment. But you have to, I think it has to come from a real place. I don't think this can be contrived. I think you really yeah. genuinely have to be um, okay with who you are and you have to lose ego. You have to lose all the other stuff that gets in the way and just be as close to an authentic person as you can be. And, and the people will pick up on that. Yeah, so how do you prepare? Because there's such a wide, divergent swath of, of people on your show. You've got a Peter McKay, you've got like, you know, the guy Gene Simmons, I think, was on your show. Like, Dude, we had Hillary Clinton and Snoop Dogg on the same show. <laughs> on the same show. And so how does your approach differ? It doesn't. I mean, it doesn't in that in my, I, I am just me. Yeah. So I don't change who I am to do the interview. What, where it's different is that I don't believe a celebrity owes you anything. They don't owe me an answer. They don't owe the audience an answer. You know, when, when, when you see interviews really push a celebrity, get to the heart of their personal, what, what does that person ever owe you? You mm-hmm. know, Tom Cruise only owes you a good performance in the movie that you pay 12 bucks to go see. They don't owe you anything. You, you try to create an environment where they will say stuff and share things. Mm-hmm. So I approach the interview that way. Peter McKay, different. Politician, Hillary Clinton, different. They owe you everything. Yeah. CEOs owe you everything. Leaders of banks owe you everything. Because we give them so many free passes and so many tax breaks and we give them so much responsibility, they owe us stuff. So I approach Peter very differently than I approach, you know, uh, somebody else. Do you feel like we can get to a Peter McKay through the same sort of personal, informal approach? Or are they too guarded? I think you have to look at who the politician is. You're not going to trip up a guy who's Mm. the deputy prime minister. You don't get to be... He's not now, but he was. You don't... You know, you don't trip up Peter McKay. Yeah. What you do is you create a, con- and, and or you set out to, because then you're then then you're kind of going out to get your interview, right, and make a name for yourself. You don't do that. You just have the conversation. I remember interviewing Maxime Bernier not that long ago, and I I'd, I wanted to get him to talk about the scandal with the things with the you know the, the documents he left at his girl's house. Yeah. And I and I, so my approach to it was, what did you learn from it? And he said, well, I learned to make better choices in women, right? <laughs> which got a laugh from the audience. But I remember sitting there going, wait a minute. She didn't leave the documents. Yeah. You left the documents. And there's a responsibility and a burden on him. And he had to, he owned up to it. He's like, you're right. You're right. And this is what it's about. Um, my my actions led to my, my problems. But you have to make sure that you hold these guys accountable also as a human being. And I think that's really key. To hear the entirety of that interview and all of our interviews for free, you can download and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Just type in the Terry Project Podcast and search. It's really easy to find. So, Gordon, it was a good year. Yeah, it was a really fun year. We did this as a side project. We never really had the time to do it, but we did it anyways because we love podcasts. And it was a lot of fun. I think we did a lot of cool things and we spoke to some really smart people. So I look forward to continuing and seeing the program flourish. Uh, I hope that you'll you'll stay with us and that uh, you'll join in the dialogue. Uh, you can keep in the loop through terry.ubc.ca. 
Uh, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, like Sam said. Download our smartphone app. And uh, we'd really like, love to hear what you think about the program, what, what you'd like to hear us cover. Uh, you can reach us through email at um, gordon.katic, K-A-T-I-C, at ubc.ca. You can also hit us up on Twitter. It's so to, to speak to me on Twitter, it's at Samadeus, which is S-A-M-A-D-E-U-S. You can reach me at Gord uh, underscore Kadic, K-A-T-I-C, and you can also reach the Terry Project at Terry UBC. So we should probably thank Molly, to our producer and contributor, um, as well as Robin, the station director here. Hugo and Brad, who help us with all the technical stuff that we just have no clue how to use. And of course, Professor Sens and Ng. Yeah, and Fox, and uh, the rest of the Terry team. Thanks so much for, uh, for helping out, and thanks so much for uh, listening. <laughs>